And this is eternal life, that they may know Thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. This is eternal life. This is the pinnacle of the Christian experience, is to know Christ. And not just to know Him superficially like we know Barack Obama. Or or like you know George Bush. We could all say we know Barack Obama, but how well do you know him? You don't know him very well. You'd have to spend time with him. You'd have to experience what he's experienced. You'd have to go through what he's gone through. You'd have to kind of walk a mile in his shoes. Same thing with George Bush or anybody else we claim to know. The people we know the best are the people we have the most in common with and the people who, with whom uh, have, have experienced the things we've experienced and we've experienced the things they've experienced. That's knowing someone. And Jesus says knowing Him and the Father is the pinnacle of the Christian's expectation of his experience. Now turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Paul tells us about all of his accomplishments as a non-Christian, as a Pharisee, as a rabbi, as a, as a Jewish cleric. And he says, if there's any reason in verse 4 of chapter 3 that I might have confidence in the flesh, meaning confidence in what the world considers successful. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I, I far more than anyone because... He was a Rhodes Scholar in his day. As the world considered intellect, he had it. As the world considered prosperity and prestige and power, he had it. As the world considered influence and affluence, he had it. He was at the pinnacle of his career as a Pharisee, as a rabbi, as a religious Jew... He could have had any future he wanted in terms of worldly success. And he tells us in verse 5, he was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, of the Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law found blameless. His resume was impeccable. He could have been hired by any Fortune 500 company, and they'd have been glad to have him. He could have been the CEO of any Fortune 500 company. But verse 7, he says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own which is derived from the law, but a righteousness that that comes from God on the basis of faith. And then he says in verse 10, that I may know Him. He said that twice. In verse 8, he said, the surpassing value of knowing Christ. In verse 10, he says, that I may know Him. How much does 
Paul want to know him? Well, he has apostolic insight. He has a, a point of view and a perspective that is being informed by the Holy Spirit of God. So in a sense, not completely, but at least to the degree necessary, he has God's perspective on things. Unlike many of us who are not inspired by God, like the, the apostles were inspired to write Holy Scripture, he has an insight that we don't have. And with that insight, he says, here's the most important thing that a Christian can aspire to, know Christ. To know him. Jesus said that to the Father. But how do you know somebody? Well, you can know about them or you can know them through your experience of having experienced what they've experienced. When you're down and out, when you're suffering, when you're in grief, when you're wanting someone to console you, do you look up people who've never experienced what you're experiencing? Or do you find people to call and text and email people who have been through or are going through what you're going through? Which one do you prefer? Of course, the latter. The difference is the difference between sympathy and empathy. People who have not gone through what you're going through can sympathize with you and feel sorry for you, but they can't relate to you because they have never gone through it. And we receive more comfort from people who've gone through what we've been through than we do from those who don't. We appreciate the sympathy and the concern and the love from people who have not gone through what we've gone through, but the effectiveness of that consolation and comfort is stronger from people who've gone through what we've gone through. And they can say, I know you because I've been through what you've been through. And if they've been through a lot of what we've been through, then they know us really well. But the people who have gone through very little of what we've gone through know us very, very little. And if they've not gone through anything we've gone through, they don't know us at all. So, here we are, and we set as our expectation, knowing Christ. That's the highest expectation you can have. And that's a spiritual expectation. That's a biblical expectation. So, in that sense, you ought to set your expectations high. But if your desire is to have a lot of money, and to be popular with the world, and to be cool and hip, and to be accepted by the world and, and celebrated by the world and so on and so forth, as a Christian, you ought to ex- set your expectations pretty low because God is not obligated nor has he promised to sign on to that kind of expectation. God is not in the business of fulfilling your dreams. He's in the business of fulfilling his glory and his will And therefore, we need to line our dreams up with His glory and we're going to be more content and more satisfied. But if we line our dreams up with the world's standards and the world's expectations and the world's priorities, God is going to work in your life to take you away from those things. So here's the the thing that you can expect as a Christian. The more you want to emulate the world, the more God is going to work against your plans. 
And you don't want God working against you. It's like kicking against the goads. The harder you kick, the worse the thorns feel. And you think, well, if I just kick a little harder, the thorns will go away. No, they just go deeper. So we need to align our expectations with God's, and we need to be content and satisfied with His expectations. Now, what are His expectations? Well, first of all, let me go through a couple of English words that are important to this message. And the first one is the one you see on the screen, apprentice. Any of you have ever been an apprentice to someone else? If you're a nurse, you have. What do we call it as a nurse? An intern? What do they call it, Sarah? Student. Okay, that's, that's pretty simple. I was looking for a fancy word, but that's, that's a student. Okay. Anybody serve as an intern anywhere? Okay, how about as an apprentice to someone who was a craftsman? Anybody served as a journeyman? The word apprentice is a person who is learning a trade from a skilled employer, having agreed to work for a fixed period at low wages. Now, if you take in the low wages part, you could probably say there's a lot of you that want to say, I'm a, I've been an apprentice then, if that's the case. But it's more than just low wages that makes you an apprentice. A master craftsman was entitled to employ young people as an inexpensive form of labor in exchange for providing food, lodging, and formal training in the craft. Most apprentices were males, but female apprentices were found in crafts such as seamstress, tailor, cordwainer, baker, stationer. Apprentices usually began at 10 to 15 years of age and would live in the master's craftsman's household. Most apprentices aspired to becoming master craftsmen themselves on completion of their contract usually a term of seven years, but some would spend time as a journeyman and a significant portion, proportion would never acquire their own workshop. A journeyman is a man who has completed an apprenticeship and is fully educated in a trade or craft, but is not yet a master. To become a master, a journeyman has to submit a master workpiece to a guild for evaluation and be admitted to the guild as a master. Sometimes he is required to accomplish a three-year working trip also called the journeyman years. Now, why do I bring that up? Well, in Great Expectations, Pip is an, an apprentice to a blacksmith. And he doesn't like it. It doesn't meet with his expectations. It, it runs counter to his expectations. He wants to be a gentleman and own land and have money. And he's hoping the lady he's staying with will line him up with a nice woman who's affluent and, and she, he can marry into that upper class of society, but he ends up being an apprentice to a blacksmith. Well, what does an apprentice do? An apprentice learns the trade of the, of the master. He's not interested in that. That's his lot. Now, it could be the case that that's where you are today. I wanted to be a gentleman and own land and have money and influence and prestige, but I'm a blacksmith apprentice. The term disciple is derived from the Koine Greek word mathetes, which means a pupil of a teacher or an apprentice to a master craftsman coming into English by way of the Latin discipulus, meaning a learner, while the more common English word is student. 
Now turn to Matthew chapter 10, or just look at it on the, the uh, slide. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says a lot to them about being a disciple. You can read about that in the Gospels, and we will cover some of that in this series. But listen to what he says to his disciples. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and a slave become like his master. You, you follow that? So what is the, the role of a disciple? To become like your teacher. The role of an apprentice is to become like your master. And the goal of the Christian life is for you to become like Jesus. One of John's epistles says, We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's the goal. That is the goal of the Christian life, to become like Jesus. Everything God is doing in your life is to transform you into the image of his son. Everything. Now, if we want to be like Jesus, then by definition, we have to experience what Jesus experienced. There's no way around it. Now, we all agree to that and we all uh, say amen to that because we know it's the Sunday school answer and we know that that's what we've heard all of our Christian life. But when it comes to our own life and the difficulties we go through, we want to know why God has done it this way. We want to know why God hasn't lived up to our expectations in terms of the plan or the pathway that he has set for us in any, any particular moment in our life or any particular time in our life. And our life is full of, of variation, isn't it? It's full of joy. How many of you have had joy the last week? Joy. How many of you have had pain the last week? How many of you have had disappointment the last week? How many of you have had elation the last week? How many of you have had your expectations met the last week? How many of you have had your expectations dashed this last week? See? Look, everybody's doing this. <laughs> so, our lives do like this in terms of pleasant experiences. Or like this. Or like that. But that's life, isn't it? Why is it when life goes like that, we get mad at God? Because we expect life to go like this. And just keep going like that. Don't we? But did God contract with you to deliver that kind of life? Did He say to you anywhere in Scripture, if you sign on with me to be my disciple, your life is going to be a rose garden? No. It might be thorns, but it not, it's not necessarily going to be a rose garden. Now, some of you have roses and thorns, right? All of us have had roses in our life, and all of us have had thorns. But why do we not thank God for the thorns? 
Well, part of it is because we're Americans and we've become accustomed to living an affluent life compared to the rest of the world. Even the poor in our country have it better than many of the so-called wealthy in other countries. So our standard, of, of our economic standard and our, our uh, level of expectation is pretty high to begin with. And so if God doesn't come in at least at that level, uh, we're disappointed. And if he comes in under that level, we're angry. But notice what Jesus said. Go back to, look, put that slide back up that, that had Matthew chapter 10, verse 23 through 25. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Student's not above his teacher. A disciple's not above his teacher. A slave's not above his master. A subject is not above his king. If they have mistreated the king, if they've mistreated the master, how are they going to treat you? And if you're called to be like your master, then you should expect to experience the things he's experienced. Luke 6, 39 and 40. Verse 40, a pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher. Right, I can't wait. But there's the fully trained part. What does God do in training? Turn to Hebrews 12. What's the training? Verse 5 of chapter 12. Have you not forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which we have all become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness." All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, but yet to those who have been trained by it, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. What's the goal for God in your life? Righteousness. Why? Because He wants you to be like Jesus. And Jesus was perfectly righteous. He wants you to be like Him. So the goal is righteousness. So the training is to righteousness. But what part of the training is, is discipline. And the discipline comes in two forms. Correction and conditioning. Sometimes he corrects you for something you've done wrong. That's, there's that kind of discipline. But most of the time, he's conditioning you. You haven't done anything wrong. He's just getting you equipped and healthy to become like Jesus. You say, I like that. That sounds good. I can sign on to that. Okay, go back to Philippians chapter 3. I can handle training. I've been an athlete. I, I, I can sign up for that. As long as I've got something good in mind, some good goal in mind. I, and being like Jesus sounds like a good goal to me. So sign me up. Well, look at verse 10 of chapter 3. Paul wants to know him. How bad does he want to know him? He wants to know him so bad he wants to experience in his life the power of his resurrection. 
How many of you want to do that? You want the power of Jesus Christ, the power that raised him from the dead. You want that working in your life. How many say amen? You want to know Jesus bad enough to to have the power of his resurrection coursing through your life? Yep, we sure do. Paul could have stopped there, but he went on and he said, in the fellowship of his sufferings. This is where some people wash out. I watched The Lone Survivor, which is a story about the Navy SEALs who were overtaken by a band of Taliban in Afghanistan. It was about seven or eight SEALs to about 100 Taliban and and there was only one survivor. But before the movie got underway, they showed you the training of the Navy SEALs. And if you decided you didn't want to be a SEAL, you took your green helmet and you rang a bell three times and you set your helmet down on the sidewalk and your instructor knew that you had quit and he was going to let you go. Well, you know how many green helmets get set down? Yeah, about 80%, if not more. Why? Because they try to make you quit. They want only people who can endure to the end, who can persevere, because they want a special breed, and, and it is a special breed. Just like an Army Ranger or a Green Beret, Special Ops, Navy SEAL, you have to have the stuff that makes you stay when everything's going south. How do they do that? They train you. They throw you in the swimming pool with your hands tied behind your back with no breathing apparatus. They do all kinds of things. They, they try to make you quit. And if you don't quit, then you have the stuff it takes. Lots of green helmets get set down on the sidewalk. The bell gets rung often because part of the training is not fun Part of the training is scary. Part of the training hurts. Part of the training is not pleasant. Part of the training is painful. Part of the training is frightening. Part of the training is terrifying. But it's necessary. And if you ask the average man in this room, you want to be a Navy SEAL for Jesus? We'd all say, Give me that gun and give me that knife and I'll just show you. Well, go back to Philippians 3. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. I've never met a Christian that didn't agree to that goal. And the fellowship of his sufferings. green helmet. You, you mean we have to suffer too? Green helmet. Where's the bell? I won't ring it three times. I'll ring it ten. What do you think you're doing, God? This isn't the life I planned. This isn't what I expected. This is not what I signed on to. I signed on to be a hero. 
I signed on to get a gold medal. I, I signed on to, to have the Congressional Medal of Honor pinned to my chest or a bronze star or a silver star, something of the like. But I didn't sign on to suffer. And Jesus says, what do you think you signed on for? It's part of the package. People who train for the Navy SEALs and other such organizations don't look at the TI or the DI and say, what do you say? What we're doing? What? They go, I heard about that. I'm not looking forward to it, but I read about it and somebody told me about it and I joined anyway. Now I got to go through it. And don't, don't think that the, the guys who never lay down the green helmet aren't scared. The guys that never lay down the green helmet aren't afraid and, and filled with pain and fatigue and sleeplessness and everything else that bothered the guys who threw down the helmet. They feel all that. The difference is, and it's God's difference because you can't explain it in human terms, they survive and the others don't. So, what can we expect? Go to slide number seven. You should expect your king to suffer. Didn't he say he would? Look at Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 32 through 45. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen. Now, you have to remember, his paradigm is not their paradigm. They're expecting him to set up a kingdom, kill the Romans, make them a footstool for his feet, give them positions on the right and left hand of Jesus so they can reign with him and conquer with him, and experience the gold and the silver and the diamonds and everything else that Rome had, the women, the wine, everything that would accrue to you if you were in charge. That's their paradigm. And Jesus says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will deliver him to the Gentiles. Now, if you, you your paradigm is wealth, health, and prosperity. Now, Jesus has just told you what the future holds. What are you likely to say if your expectations have been just decimated? What's the, what's the next words out of your mouth? Jesus, wait a minute. The, the prophets said you were going to set up a throne and you were going to reign and there would be streets of gold and there would be uh, peace and the enemies would be put under your feet. That means under our feet too. And the, you would have people reigning on your right and on your left and you just said you're going to die and suffer. Something's not right with this picture. Now Peter said that later in another passage. And Jesus said to him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for your heart is not set on the intentions of God but on the intentions of man. In other words, Peter, align your expectations with my plan. 
Don't expect to align my plan with your expectations. It's you, Peter, who need to change your paradigm, not me. Peter's hard to learn. He's hard, hard to learn a lesson because near the end of Jesus' ministry, Jesus takes a towel to try to wash Peter's feet and Peter says, not me. You're not washing my feet. Why did Peter say that? Because Peter knew how it worked. He, he was the disciple. Jesus was the teacher. He was the apprentice. Jesus was the master. He's the subject. Jesus is the king. He knows how that works. And he says, if the teacher is washing feet... What job will I be assigned? You can't wash feet, Jesus, because that makes you a lowly, menial servant, and that makes me lower. Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. Peter said, no part, foot washing. No part, no part, foot foot washing. And don't stop there, Jesus. Wash my whole body. Jesus said, you have no need to have your body washed. You are clean, Peter. In other words, you're one of my disciples. You're saved, but you have a lesson that you've yet to learn, and that is the lesson of servanthood. And that requires washing your feet and being accepted, accepting having your feet washed, knowing that that's what you're going to be called to do to others. Peter says, okay, then wash my feet. Don't think he had an attitude change. He was disappointed. And so you expect these guys to say, wait a minute, Jesus, could you clarify something for us? Because what you just described is not what we're expecting. And here's what they do. He says to them, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and they will spit upon him, and scourge him, and kill him, and three days later he will rise again. The only positive thing he says in those two verses is that he's going to rise again. And James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, said, Teacher, we want you to do something for us, whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, grant that we may sit in your glory on one on the right and one on the left. Now, you know what Jesus is thinking? He's thinking, did you not hear what I just said? I said, I'm going to be delivered up and mocked and spat upon and crucified. And you want to sit on one hand and the other on the other. Do you realize that I'm the king, you're the subject, I'm the teacher, you're the student, I'm the master, you're the apprentice. If they do that stuff to me, they're going to do that and worse to you. And you want to sit on that side and this side. And, and that because you see, the reason they ask is because they, that, that statement went right over their head. They're still thinking on the old paradigm. And so Jesus brings them back to reality. He says, you do not know what you are asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, you bet. Because they're still in the other paradigm. Yeah, we can handle grapes and, and palm branches. 
James looks over at John and says, who couldn't? He says to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to grant for one to sit on the left and one on the right is not mine to give, but only to those to whom it has been appointed. It doesn't say what James and John said, but it tells us what the other ten were doing. They began to feel indignant with James and John. There's a couple of reasons why they may have felt indignant. One, virtuous, the other not. The virtuous one is this. The other, tw- the other ten go, you know, that was really petty and tacky of them to ask that of Jesus. How juvenile. How uncouth. How crude. How rude. How superficial. But that would be to think too well of these guys. They all have the same paradigm. And what they're thinking is this. We wanted to get to Jesus before they did. Now they got to ask the question first, and so they get the left and right position. We're going to be down the table a few, a few uh, places. And then Jesus, hearing this, James and John's request, the disciples became indignant and calling them to himself, because he knows what's going on in their heart. All 12 of them. He says, you know that that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them? And what do they say? Do we know? We're the ones that get get lorded over all the time. Those Romans are beasts. The Greeks weren't any better. The Medo-Persians were pretty bad. The Babylonians were terrible. And the Assyrians were worst of all. Do we know what Gentiles do when they have power? You better believe we know what they do. That's why we can't wait to get it. Payback. When you put us on your right and your left, I'm going to be general number one. He's going to be general number two. We're going to launch an offensive against the Romans and we're not going to leave any of them alive. We can't wait till we get the power. So they're thinking, okay, here we go, here we go. You know how they lord it over them? Your turn's coming. Nope, that's not what he said. He said, it is not so among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first shall be slave of all. Paradigm shift. We don't want to do that, Lord. This is not what we expected. You're painting a picture that isn't as beautiful as the one we had imagined. You're painting a picture that is not as prosperous and affluent. In fact, it's pretty subservient. And then he says... For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. That totally shattered their paradigm. You can't 
We've been waiting for years. Our ancestors have been waiting for years for the deliverer to come and deliver us from our oppressors. And Jesus says, I am. How are you going to do that? Die. What good's a dead Messiah? I'm going to pay for your sins. Your worst enemy is you. The Romans cannot do to you what you can do to you. I've come to save you from your worst enemy, your sinful nature, the shame and the guilt, and the wrath that awaits you if you don't repent. My first coming is to die so that your sins may be forgiven. My second coming is to reign so that those who won't submit to my dying will be overwhelmed. It's a paradigm shift. As our culture becomes more and more anti-Christian, we're going to have more green helmets laid on the sidewalk. Watch. Watch. Will you be one of them? I didn't sign up for this. What did you sign up for? Health, wealth, and prosperity. Well, God signed you up for health, wealth, and prosperity too, but just not the kind you're thinking. Well, what kind of prosperity? Being like Jesus. I think I like that idea. What's it like? He got to reign, didn't he? Yeah, he's reigning at the right hand of the Father right now. I like it. He rose from the dead, didn't he? Yep, I get to rise. You get to rise from the dead. I like it. You get to know him better and better every day. That sounds pretty good too. What does it entail? It entails the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead working in your life to do and move things and obstacles in your life that need to be moved that you couldn't move on your own power. I really like in this. What else does it entail? Suffering. Is that a necessary part? Yes. We can't bypass the suffering. No. Why not? Because you would only know Jesus so well and you wouldn't know him well enough. So suffering's necessary, yes. That's why Paul said, I want to know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. You see, for Paul, this is what Paul thought. How many of you like fellowship? I love fellowship. You know what fellowship is? It's when people who have common experiences get together and share those common experiences and what God is doing in those common experiences. And there's fellowship. 
You can't have fellowship unless you have something in common. And the, the more you have in common, the deeper the fellowship. And the deeper the fellowship, the greater the joy. So the greater the joy, the greater the, that you have in common. And Jesus suffered a lot, so you can expect to suffer a lot. Expect it. Great expectations. You say, wait a minute, how are you defining great? Well, hopefully, like the Bible. Not as the world defines it. Because the the disciples were working with the world's definition. Jesus was working with God's definition. God thinks that it is the best thing you can ever experience in life or for for eternity to know Jesus better and better and better and better. The better you know Jesus, the more healthy you are. The better you know Jesus, the richer you are. Both sides are necessary. So we need to have a paradigm shift where we count as great knowing Jesus and what we count as knowing him is going through what he went through so that when we go through it, and here's the good news. I know you've been waiting for it. With all the suffering you will have to go through in this lifetime before you get to glory, it's just scratching the surface of what he suffered. So here's the good news. We have to suffer And we may have to suffer a lot, but a lot for us is just a smidgen of what he went through. I've counseled a lot of people over the years, and disappointment is usually what gets them into my office. Disappointment. Or dashed expectations. And when I remind them of suffering as part of the package they signed on for, you signed on for this. You signed on, whether you realized it or not, to say, Lord, if it's necessary, let me go through what Jesus went through. See, I don't remember that. That was in the fine print, wasn't it? No, it wasn't. So when he does it to you, why are you angry? I know why you're grieving because grief hurts. I know why you're fearful because it's fearful. I know why you're afraid because it makes you afraid. But I don't know why... You're, 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 you're surprised. I don't know why you're angry. Because God is delivering just exactly what he promised he would. He promised to help you know Jesus better. And he's delivering. Sometimes the pain comes from our own stupidity. 
and our rebelliousness and our stubbornness. Sometimes it doesn't come from that at all. It's just part of the training that God has to help us go through to know Jesus better. But it's going to be both. And for those of you who get this much suffering and this much pleasure, praise God for that. But for those of you who get this much suffering and this much pleasure, praise God for that. Because you know Jesus in his sufferings better than those other people know him in their pleasure and vice versa. It's not going to be the same for every one of us. And I can look at my suffering and it pales into insignificance to what other people throughout the Christian church have experienced and are experiencing right now. So I'm not feeling sorry for me. If I compared my suffering with the suffering of others in in, in the world, it wouldn't even begin to rise to a level of recognition. So God's going to give you your amount of suffering and he's going to give you your amount of pleasure. And we have to be willing to accept both because that's what we signed on for. What are your expectations? We need to align them with God's. And Paul did. And the reason why... he was able to say, in all circumstances, I have been able to be content, is because he knew all circumstances was conforming him to the image of Jesus. Every one of them. That's why he says in Romans eight twenty eight, for God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. In other words, God doesn't waste anything. He uses everything, pain, suffering, joy, pleasure, peace, conflict, frustration, fulfillment, everything he uses to conform you to the image of his son. That's why Paul can say in Thessalonians, be thankful for everything. Rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. When you read that and you're not aware of the the greater picture, you say, what is this guy? I wonder if some people think Paul was crazy. He was the most sane human that lived after Jesus. Let's pray.